Ian Mackey took on gun laws and children's rights during his very first session as a Missouri state representative this year. Mackey loves politics so much, he went up to the Iowa State Fair just to see the Democratic presidential candidates in person. The Richmond Heights Democrat joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking. Let's hit the music. This is Politically Speaking, the longest-running episodic podcast about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that, that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. Hi, this is Julie O'Donohue. I'm your host for Politically Speaking, and I'm here with my co-host... Jason Rosenbaum. And our special guest... State Representative Ian Mackey. Hi, welcome, Representative Mackey. Thank you. Thanks for... Uh, coming in. So this is your first time on the podcast? This is. I'm very excited. We're excited to have you. I'm especially excited for a reason that I'm going to mention after you say what the boundaries of your district are. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So why don't we start out with that? Tell us where your district is. My uh, district starts in Jason's front yard um, and moves uh, uh, west to Warson Road in Ladue. So city county line basically to Warson Road. Um, and then north to south, it's from the Del Mar Loop um, down to roughly Highway 40. Um, it, it slips a little bit south in certain parts, but basically that's the rectangle, rectangular shape of my district. And when uh, Representative Mackey says it starts in my front yard, he is not exaggerating. Oh, and I, I live in a Representative Mitten's district, but if I cross my street, Bellevue, and stand in front of the church, I am in Representative Mackey's district. That's correct. So the ch- and I talked to him before the show. The chances of him being my state representative after redistricting, while it's not for certain, I would say it's a decent chance. So um, I'm going to be super nice to him so he doesn't uh, propose a bill banning me from living in Missouri. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, since you've never been on the podcast before, can you Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about um, where you're from, where you grew up, and how you got interested in politics? Yeah, I grew up in southwest Missouri. I went to high school at Skyline High School in Hickory County, Missouri. And if anybody, I, I often tell folks in St. Louis when they ask me where I went to high school, if they if they can put it on a map, I'll buy them a beer. So it's Skyline High School in Hickory County, Missouri. Um, and uh, politics has always just uh, been an interest of mine. You know, as a kid trying to figure out what interested me, it was politics. Um, it's starting in high school, volunteering on campaigns, and then um, in college, Spending the uh, majority of my undergraduate experience um, working in Robin Carnahan's office and the Secretary of State's office in Jefferson City and really getting um, full-on exposure to what happens in our state capital. What did you do for former Secretary Carnahan? So I was a, a, an intern my entire uh, four years there, um, mostly doing um, communications work. So learning how to write press releases, learning how to interact with reporters, um, managing the Archives Alive program, which is still up and running, which is an exciting uh, program that brings elementary students to our state archives and uh, getting that news out to their local papers. Uh, When did you first decide that I want to run for the state legislature? Because you ran in 2018 in a district that was heavily Democratic. You and, as I mentioned, Sam Gladney, who is an attorney, ran in a very competitive but friendly race. But what, what prompted you to say, I want to be in the state legislature? You know, I think it was a place where I that, that I always wanted to start. I mean, I you know, you either have the sort of uh, executive sort of leanings or you have the legislative leanings. I, I 
truly enjoy the, the legislature. Um, I, I enjoy the legislative process. Um, it's something that um, I felt like was the best fit for me. Um, and so, and, and I had, you know, like I said, exposure in the Capitol, um, you know, meeting representatives, trying to understand um, reasons behind why bills were filed or why certain actions were taken. And it seemed like uh, the best fit for me. You have a degree in early childhood education. I do. And a law degree. I do. And I'm curious about how you get to that combination of degrees. <laughs> well, um, it, it's it's funny. I I knew I wanted to do both. Uh, I just I knew I wanted to be a teacher. Um, both my parents were teachers. Um, I, I sort of um, explored that career path through osmosis for a little bit. Um, um, you know, exploring what they did on a daily basis. Um, I also was a kid who. Um, uh, didn't necessarily have what you would call a successful educational career early on, <laughs> so uh, sort of came at it from uh, wanting to wanting to impart what I could as you know a quote unquote bad kid into the uh, educational process. You were a bad kid. I was a, especially a bad young kid. Absolutely, yeah. It's, uh, kindergarten and first grade years were really really rough on my family, and I'm I'm fortunate that that I'm here now. And so I wanted to basically bring that perspective to um, that age group, you know. And there's not there's so few men um, that teach that age level right now. Um, and so I had a great experience, um, almost eight years doing that. Um, and then, but also do I wanted to be a lawyer and so, um, pursued that as well. So you were like a, a teacher for eight years before you decided to get your law degree. So the, so the last four years of my teaching experience, I was going to law school at night. Okay. But still, yeah, that, that's an example of somebody who had one career and then kind of had a pivot in the middle of it. Right. Um, so I guess this is kind of a good way to segue into to policy. How does your experience in the educational realm kind of parlay with what's being talked about in Jefferson City right now? Because from, from looking at a lot of the bills that you sponsored, it's multifaceted, but a lot of them tend to be in the education realm. And I'm interested to hear like how some of those ideas are being received in a heavily Republican legislature. Uh, fortunately, I think the issue of education is the last standing, true, bipartisan issue. Uh, I mean, it, it, I, I'm hard-pressed to think of another issue where um, you do, where the debate doesn't quickly transform into partisan politics. We have um, allies on both sides of the aisle who support public education, um, who support uh, bills sponsored by Democrats and Republicans. And so uh, it's an issue that provides somebody like myself, who's a you know, member of a minority party, an opportunity to actually get some legislation accomplished. And, uh, you know, the... Um, the biggest issue that I push right now, the biggest um, bill that I've worked on and tried to move forward is dealing with the issue of seclusion and restraint in in, in schools, in K-12 schools. And that has been, um, that has brought me a lot of friends on the other side of the aisle in the majority party, folks who um, see this uh, just as an issue that's just as important as I do. Explain what a seclusion room is and what your bill would do and why you think the current situation is less than optimal. Sure. So a seclusion or isolation room in most cases is a small closet-sized space, um, sometimes with padded walls, um, usually of one color, uh, that kids um, are put in for extended periods of time, often hours at a time, um, and often without their parents being notified. 
Um, and usually these kids are uh, kids who, a disproportionate number of them are kids who have disabilities, um, typically who have verbal processing uh, delays, who suffer from uh, autism, who have other sorts of disabilities that manifest in ways that are often labeled as behavior issues or behavior problems. And so, um, you know, I've been working with um, a group of parents um, whose kids have gone through this. Um, it happens in every part of our state. There are schools in the St. Louis region, Kansas City region, Springfield region, Columbia, across our state where this is happening. Um, what my bill says is use seclusion and restraint only if the child is poses a health or safety threat to themselves or to others. Um, I got to say, anecdotally, the large portion, the largest share of the kids that I've come across who've been through this are really little kids. Our kids in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, kids fourth grade and under, um, kids and where it's tough to see that health and safety threat really being met. Um, and, and the biggest piece to this, honestly, and probably the most bipartisan piece to this is parental notification. If you choose to put a child in that room, if you feel like you are at the last resort where you must take that child and escort them to that closet and close the door and lock it behind them, your next call has to be that child's parent. That parent needs to know that that's where the child is spending the majority of their day. Now, as many people know on this show, I am a father of a child with special needs. And I'm glad that your bill does have the exception for health or safety, because I can envision there are instances, especially of young children with special needs, where they are not only a harm to potentially others, but to themselves. And sure. I definitely think that there are exceptions. But the fact that there, there's no requirement to notify parents when, when they're put into a seclusion room, that is genuinely very surprising. I would definitely want to know if my child was in that situation. And I know I'm not supposed to have opinions as a reporter, but as a parent who... I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a parent that wouldn't want to know. Yeah. Um, I think, And I think that's why the bill has, has drawn the, the broad consensus that it's drawn. Um, and, you know, in some instances, um, you know, the local policy from the school district will say that parents need to be notified. But, par but the real story is that parents aren't notified. And right now, that's a violation of the school board policy. Right now, there's really little to no remedy for that. Part of this is actually taking um, language that exists on paper in some school policies and codifying it into state law so that if it is violated, it's not just a violation of a policy that's on paper in the superintendent's office. It's a violation of state law. Are you saying that um, parents never find out that their child was in this situation or are they finding out when they pick their child up or their you know the parents the parents that I've spoken with the parents who have been most active and most frustrated with this issue are parents whose children eventually tell them um, I work very closely with a mother from um, a, a local district in the St. Louis region um, whose child uh, with, with verbal processing delays was put in uh, what he eventually broke down and called the blue room um, and she did not know what the blue room was um, this is a story that's been reported in lo local press here in St. Louis. Um, she had no idea what the Blue Room was, and she could not get out of him exactly what the Blue Room was. So she went to the school district searching for answers, and it turns out it was a small closet with blue padded walls, and that's where this child was spending his time. We'll be back after this message. And we're back with Representative Mackey, who's here for the first time. Um, I wanted to move on to ask about um, some of the recent discussion we've had about gun restrictions. Uh, as everyone's probably well aware, uh, in St. Louis, both in the county and the city now, we've seen um, children killed by gun violence. Uh, I noticed that you were someone who's actually pushed some gun restrictions recently. Mm -hmm. 
First of all, can you talk about, I I think there were two bills, what they did and why you brought them forward? Sure. Um, So one bill that I've been particularly interested in um, since a Kansas City news outlet um, exposed this issue uh, a few years ago, um, a bill that my predecessor put forward, um, a bill that I think should be fairly bipartisan and should be a small incremental step, is the sale of ammunition to minors. Um, right now, federal law requires minors from purchasing ammunition. Um, but according to law enforcement personnel and co- according to prosecutors, uh, the way the law is written, it does not place any liability on the person selling that minor the ammunition. It does not place any liability on the sellers of the ammunition. And so um, it's been well documented in the Kansas City region that high school kids in the middle of the school day, 12, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, walk into various places that sell ammunition and they buy bullets in the middle of the school day. That's terrifying. They they are children who were sold bullets in the middle of the school day. Um, so we, you know, I'm working however I can with whomever I can um, to basically make sure that the current law is enforced, um, that, that the liability isn't on the minor, but that the liability is on the person that sold the minor that ammunition. And there's another bill related to domestic uh, there's the red the red flag laws, which we've um, you know we've seen that pushed um, across the country. Uh, we see that as it polls um, incredibly high, you know a bipartisan consensus um, at least among voters you know upwards of eighty percent in national polls um, supporting red flag laws um, where um, and not just domestic violence but you know um, suicidal uh, tendencies as well. Basically, family members being able to on a temporary basis have guns removed from their homes um, through a court order um, until a person's case is adjudicated. And one of the pushbacks I've heard about that particular idea is there could be an instance where somebody does a false red flag against somebody who mm-hmm. does, is not suicidal and is not committing domestic violence, and it may inhibit them for a certain amount of time to buy a gun unfairly. Are there any protections in that bill against that sort of thing? or? Is it just like the, the, the case would be adjudicated relatively quickly, it, so if that, right. that wouldn't really be an issue? It's not an issue. I mean, it has to be adjudicated. Uh, it has to be adjudicated quickly. It's, it's, a, it's a short, and, it, and, and if it's put in place, it's also temporary. I mean, this is a really short-term fix to say, um, and, and yeah, it's, 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 it's such a short-term issue that, um, you know, if you're prevented from, you know, exercising your Second Amendment right to purchase a firearm for 48 hours, it's a reasonable delay. Okay, that's why I asked that question. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because when you ask Governor Mike Parson about some of these ideas, like stricter background checks, like red flag laws and other things, he seems pretty amenable to that. But from listening to him and listening to others, there's not a lot of confidence that those types of things would pass out of the legislature right now. Like what you're proposing is not like I'm going to take away uh, AR-15s from people, which would have zero chance of passing the Missouri legislature or Congress. These are things that I think have some Republican support, but it just doesn't seem like it's going to make it through the legislature. Is that your sense as well? And if so, why? It, it hasn't reached a critical mass. My, my private conversations with individual members uh, sound much like Governor Parson's remarks on the record. Um, these ideas make sense. These are ideas we should explore. Um, some members go further and say, yeah, this should be law. Yeah, we should change that. But until there's a critical mass in the majority party, meaning enough votes um, you know, uh, to say that this is going to pass if we put it up to a vote, until we get to that point... Um, then it's, it's just going to be status quo. Can you be specific about what happened with both of your bills so people can understand maybe 
how these types of bills are received? Uh, I mean, my bills have just sat. You know, they haven't had, they have not been assigned a committee hearing. Um, these are just conversations that I have um, with members who serve on those committees or members who, um, I, you know, I find myself in in a social setting and we're talking about legislation. Um, these are just private conversations that I've had with folks. They've not, um, the, those particular bills, the only bill that I've ever, um, you know, explored in the legislative process is the, the education bill we just mentioned. I know a lot of your colleagues have put a lot of pressure on Governor Parson to affirmably respond to the violence in St. Louis and Kansas City. And even he would say, yes, the state has responsibility to be a part of this. And I don't think that he's arguing that either way. But I have to ask this question. Is the reason why Democrats are putting more pressure on Parson is because there's a lack of confidence in St. Louis Mayor Lida Krusen to be able to act on her own or be able to act authoritatively? Because I'm going to be very candid with you. When I talk with some people privately, they they do tell me that they don't have a lot of confidence in her to deal with this by herself. So I think that needs to be addressed with my question. That may be how some folks come at it. I wouldn't be surprised at all if that's how some folks come at the issue of, of getting the governor involved in this issue. Um, for me, it comes from a standpoint of frustration that the governor in Jefferson City, folks in Jefferson City, the majority party, seem unwilling to do anything to address it. Um, for me, it's 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 getting the governor involved because, uh, you know, the, the House of Representatives won't get involved and, you know, the Senate might or might not get involved. Um, and, you know, he's the chief executive the buck stops with him. Um, he's got a city right now that's in crisis and he needs to deal with it. And I will just uh, kind of play devil's advocate with myself. There are a lot of things like Mayor Cruson can't do on her own. Sure. Like you can't pass gun restrictions on a local level. Right. And there could be state resources. We've talked about this a lot that are probably more plentiful on a state level right now than on a city level. And I also know that, you know, you're a county resident. I'm a county resident. St. Louis County Executive Sam Page has mentioned that he wants to be involved with this, even though a lot of the violence is in the city and there could potentially be cooperation or, or financial resources involved with that. Right. And 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 cities should be. For I mean, part of this is having a conversation with the governor about letting local municipalities decide their own gun laws. I mean, if you visited my website during the campaign, the first day I put it up 18 months before the campaign, that was my proposal for gun laws on the issues page of my website. And that has been where I've come at this issue from day one. Um, let Hickory County have its own gun laws and let the city of St. Louis have its own gun laws. We We have different situations with guns in different parts of our state. I think we have to remind people, I'm not reading the governor's mind, but he he comes from a law enforcement background. I I think a lot of people who don't follow politics closely don't necessarily realize that, yes, a lot of law enforcement people are conservative, but they tend to not be as conservative on uh, the issue of gun rights. They, They tend to be a little bit more moderate on that. I would assume, frankly, because they are the ones that are dealing with this, not only with things involving mass shootings, but they deal with domestic violence. They deal with um, people who commit suicide. I actually want to go back to, because I think, I know political insiders understand this, but I want you to explain. So when you introduce bills to restrict guns, they are not even, there's not even a conversation that's happening in no. a committee meeting. You're not getting that far. If if the, if, some, if a member of the majority party fi- uh, files a piece of legislation that has the word firearm in it, it's 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 not going to go anywhere. You mean minority party? I'm sorry, minority party. It's not going to go anywhere. Is that really surprising, though? Because let's just say I was a Republican in Illinois, 
and I proposed a bill to like ban abortion after eight weeks, <laughs> Michael Madigan would probably right. not, not. But not, we're not, not talking about either. extreme laws, though. I mean, I, we're talking. I, but I understand, yes. but like, I understand. Isn't this yes. kind of like one of the consequences of only having forty-five or forty-six members? That it is. like maybe bills that have a lot of opposition amongst the majority party are not going to gain a lot of traction. But the the difference is uh, the growing unwillingness of members of the majority party to work with members of the minority party. That's mm-hmm. that's what that's what that's where the rubber meets the road. Um, and a lot of that's term limits. Um, you know, there's no term limits in Illinois. Folks are much more willing to work together, I think, in Illinois because there's no term limits. Um, the the fact that we have a timetable of eight years. Um, really uh, prohibits, or at least inhibits, I guess, um, a lot of uh, tendencies to work across the aisle, or, or at least for the majority party, to extend courtesies to the minority party when there's uh, when the clock's running. I would also say, I, I shout out to Jacqueline Driscoll, our state house reporter in Jefferson City. Uh, she covered Illinois, and I, I covered Louisiana uh, very recently, the legislatures there. And in, in both of our states, she said Republican bills did get heard. Yes. I don't I don't know if you, what you're talking about, whether that would have gotten heard. I know in my state uh, or my old state, uh, most most bills got heard, even though the Republicans controlled both both chambers. But it was situational. As I mentioned, if it was something that had like again, cross-partisan appeal. Yeah, I think Illinois Republicans would be successful because they have more experience and more relationships. But if it's something that is like a red meat political issue for Republicans, right? probably not. Sure. Yeah. I mean, in some cases, at least in my experience covering the legislature in Virginia and Louisiana, for example, in Louisiana, we saw a lot of firearm restriction bills introduced and people actually wanted to be able to vote them down. So they came before they committee wanted to show that they and were, people sure. were like, Let's like it's on, you know, so so they didn't get anywhere, but there was a discussion about them. Mm-hmm. I think this is the first time um, I, I think most of us can remember that the minority leader did not have a bill referred to committee, um, that the minority party did not have an amendment accepted in the budget process on the floor. Um, we're getting increasingly more partisan in the state house of Missouri. I think we want to parlay into something we haven't talked a lot about in the show, and that's the 2020 presidential race, because one of the, I am a I am a Facebook friend of yours, and one of the things that I've really enjoyed is you've actually gone to Iowa and watched some of the presidential candidates speak, or you've watched debates, and you would have like your takes on each candidate in kind of a pithy and interesting way, and I'm kind of interested to hear what your thoughts are on how the Democratic primary is going and how you think it's going to like influence how, how do you think Missouri is going to react to it when Missouri has to vote in a few months because if there's still like nine or 10 candidates, Missouri could play a role. I'm not going to oversell it and say we're going to be a crucial state, but like who do you think is going to gain a lot of traction in Missouri when people have to vote? I think we're certainly going to play a role in the primary. We're pretty early in the primary process, um, and I think there will be a number of candidates um, still in the debate. Um, you know, there are some candidates polling pretty low single digits who still have a lot of money to burn through, um, and I don't think they're going to get out of the race with that in the bank. Um, and so there are going to be folks um, who try to skip over states, probably, who try to uh, 
tackle uh, states like ours that other folks may not be focusing on, I think will definitely play a role. I think it can make for a really interesting convention, too, um, when you've got uh, eight different candidates on the ballot and maybe three or four or five of them poll 15 percent in certain uh, districts and, and, and draw delegates. I think that'll be interesting. Um, I think it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a brutal process, but that's what primaries are, you know, and we've got a lot of great candidates. I think any one of them, um, you know, I hate to sound so cliched, but it's true. I mean, I'm a Democrat and I like each of them on the stage. And I think any of them could beat Donald Trump. So what? How often are you going to Iowa to go? See Not these often. <laughs> I took a trip to the state fair, um, you know, which is was, a great state fair. It's I've a fabulous. Actually, state I have fair. been there before because my grandpa is from Monroe, Iowa. He moved to North St. Louis when he was like three, but. I think that it strengthens my my very weak rural credibility right there, <laughs> just by saying that. But continue. No, it's great. It's it's um. It, I will be making more trips up there. You know, to to volunteer, to to knock on doors for candidates, to get involved in the process. It's um. It's really, uh, you know, uh, I've had the opportunity to just sort of be on the ground in Iowa because we're so we're such in close proximity, and I've I've done the same in New Hampshire. And you know, you get presidential candidates even towards the primary, you get presidential candidates in a room, you know, in a in someone's living room with you know twenty or thirty people. I mean, you can you you have the opportunity to vet them like anyone else. You have the opportunity to ask them very straightforward questions and and get straightforward answers. And it's um, for for somebody who's a political junkie, there's nothing better. Uh, do you have a favorite yet? I do have a favorite. Uh, my favorite is Pete, Mayor Pete. Um, you know, uh, we are both gay Episcopalians, um, and I think I just see, he says things the way I, I try to say them, <laughs> and, are, uh, and, and, I, and I like him for that. We were kind of talking about this in the green room. Are you surprised he's gained so much traction, given that he's like the mayor of a town? I guess it's 150,000 people, 200,000 right. people, not much bigger than Columbia, Missouri, mm-hmm. different types of mayors. Like, right. I have no offense to Brian Treese, <laughs> but he is effectively an at-large councilman, and and, and Buttigieg is is a, I think a strong mayor, right. so he like appoints everybody. But still, the fact that he's hanging around like the lower first tier has surprised a lot of people. Do you have any? theories of why he's been able to do so well so far. I, I think it's it's honestly his candor, um, the way he expresses himself on issues. I think, you know, uh, at first I, I wondered, you know, literally if, if it was just me, you know, looking at another gay Episcopalian, uh, him resonating with me and me finding him authentic because of that. But I talked to plenty of folks who have various different backgrounds, quite different from mine, and they say the same thing, that they that he, he exudes authenticity, he exudes sincereness. Um, you can, it's, it's, it's tough to put your finger on it, but you know what, when you see it, he means what he says. And I think that's why he's been successful. I mean, I want to talk to you a little bit about, it seems maybe this is making me old, but you know, the first term that president Obama was president, I I believe he was not in favor of same sex marriage at that point. I think he, I kind of remember an interview where he officially, he officially, everyone knew. knew. Okay. So publicly, (laughs) Publicly. he had had maybe a a stance (laughs) that maybe he didn't share privately. Sure. Now, fast forward, we're what, we're 10 years from then. I mean, Mayor Pete, his, his sexuality is certainly part of his campaign. But it, it is interesting. He's getting a lot of attention. His husband is his own, like, thing. I think right. his husband's almost more popular than Mayor Pete. And My some... husband is more popular than me. So, you know, it often works that way. He, he, is a great, he is a great guy. <laughs> and I he's met, on Twitter. He, he is on Twitter, as we're going to mention. But I, I got to meet him at uh, the last day of the, the Capitol. And just an exceptional person. Yeah, he is. He is. But continue. Um, so I was wondering, like, what does that mean 
do you think that's like a, a step forward, regardless of where Mayor Pete ends up in the great presidential race or the great yeah. Democratic? No, race? absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a it's a it's a hurdle crossed to have him in the race and to have him polling where he is and raising the type of money he is and performing the way he is. Um, yeah, it's it's um, it's it's one step at a time, one, one hurdle at a time. And I think we're making progress. Absolutely. It's becoming a little bit more common for LGBT people to be elected. It's but. I imagine that for your, for some of your colleagues, especially who are re- Republicans and may have religious objections against being gay or lesbian or whatever, is it become easier to like converse with them and, and talk with them about these types of issues than it was, say, 10 or 15 years ago? Or do you still kind of run into some of the same barriers that you know, JMO might have run into when she was there, or Joey Justice. I think the barriers I run into are are um, quite diminished compared to the barriers they ran into, and I think that's because more people have come out. Um, you know, uh, there are uh, folks who are members of the religious right in Jefferson City, but they have a gay member in their family, and so I don't I don't face a barrier talking to them. There are some members of the religious right who. M- may have a gay member that they don't accept or who don't know any gay people or who haven't been exposed to many gay folks or don't have any gay folks that they're close to. Um, For those folks, it's still a barrier to do business. So I guess we're going to end the show by doing something that is a little risky, but we're going to do it anyways. Uh Uh, We want to ask you to point to two or three things in your district that you think people that you think are exceptional and the reason it's risky is you're <laughs> you're potentially leaving off a bunch of things that uh could be on this list that's right so uh this is your chance to show off your district that's right well i'm going to highlight the well-known parts such as the del mar loop downtown clayton uh there are lots of places that i feel like folks are familiar with some some key hidden spots are um, a spot that i often drive by um, that Stephen and I drive by as we're um, going to the tennis court is um, a place where Arthur Ashe spent a summer playing tennis in Richmond Heights. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, uh, there was a, a gentleman by the name of Richard Hudlin um, who uh, pretty much single-handedly um, uh, um, took the uh, St. Louis uh, area tennis courts out of segregation, desegregated the tennis courts. Um, the courts were still segregated in Virginia, where Arthur Ashe was from, and he invited Ashe to come to Richmond Heights and play tennis in St. Louis. And so there's a um, a small, very small park um, in Richmond Heights near Laclede Station in Bennett, that intersection, um, and that's where Arthur Ashe spent uh, a summer playing tennis, I think in 1960, uh, playing tennis. And so, you know, as ten- we're both tennis fans, Steve and I are tennis fans. There are great places to play tennis in the district too. Flynn Park is another great place with tons of free courts in the district. Um, we are a great tennis town and there are there's lots of tennis abound. It's interesting because Arthur Ashe is from Richmond, Virginia. Right, and came to <laughs> Richmond Heights to play. Yes. yes. To, to, yeah. And yeah. if you ever go to Richmond, Virginia, many, many things are named after him. Yes. Many things. <laughs> I mean, he was an icon. Icon in tennis, icon in the um, the AIDS crisis and the, and the AIDS movement. Um, and it, it's uh, it's He's a remarkable human being. Thank you very much. If you want to find our other stories, go to stlpublicradio.org. You can find me on Twitter at J.S. O'Donohue. You can find Jason at... Jay Rosenbaum. And we can find you on Twitter nowhere. No, you can't. But you can go to my website, ianmackey.com. My cell phone number's up there. My email address is up there. You can find me on Facebook. I'm not hard to get a hold of. 
I, I think you made the right call getting off of Twitter. Your uh, rep, former representative Clem Smith was never on Twitter, and I found that the smartest people in Missouri politics got the hell off of that hellscape, <laughs> which I use all the time and I use for my job, but I'm increasingly disliking Twitter by the, the minute. It's becoming a terrible place to be. Take the plunge. Take the plunge. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Thanks. Keep on the sunny side, always on the sunny side. Keep on the sunny side of life. It will help us every day. It will brighten all the way. If we keep.